There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered, with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 5 The Blood Spattered Cabin I've been away for a week. I was in Lisbon in Portugal. Beautiful city. If you ever get a chance to go there, go there. But it rained, and it rained for most of the week. And whilst it was nice to take a step back from work and to think about other things, the thing is, my involvement with the Fred case and the gentleman case means I never really switch off from them. And I know Ian and Joe are exactly the same. So, one rainy afternoon, I was sat in the hotel lobby with my laptop watching the world go by, and I stumbled across something. Something interesting in the old newspaper archives. Something very interesting in relation to this case. And it involved a man, a Dutch man, going missing from a boat in the North Sea, 11 days before the gentleman was found. And that man who went missing was never found. And there are some very suspicious aspects to that case. So, in the second part of this podcast, we will tell you all about that. It's a very fascinating story and something that we need to dig very deeply into. But firstly, we've got some unfinished business. And listen closely to this, because remember Michael Sterling Dean. We found him because we traced a tie on the body to Canada. And then Ian found a missing man in Toronto called Michael Dean, who was the same height, six foot five, give or take. So he could definitely be the gentleman. So we needed to find out about him. And then Joe traced someone called Michael Sterling Dean, who seemed to have connections to Canada, but who died in Brighton in 1992. But we don't know his height. So we have three parts in a triangle. The gentleman of Heligoland, that body, six foot five-ish, name unknown. Michael Dean, a Canadian who goes missing from Canada. 30 years ago, height 6 foot 6-ish, so that's a match. And we've got Michael Sterling Dean, height unknown, but definitely with Canadian links. And the same date of birth as the man who's gone missing in Canada. So it's a bit confusing, but there was one piece of information that would solve everything. And that was the bit of information we were waiting for, that we'd been unable to access. What was the height of the man who died in Brighton? Because if he was six foot six-ish, it's certain he's the Canadian missing person. And we've solved one of Canada's oldest missing persons cases. Because remember, only three in a thousand men are that height. So to share the same height and to share the same date of birth, they even shared the same name, Michael Dean. And to share connections with Canada, that would definitely be him. Problem is, if he's less than that, if he's five foot ten, something very weird is going on. So, on Thursday in Lisbon, day before I was to fly back, I got two missed calls from an unknown number on my phone. So I thought that was a bit odd. Then I got an email. 
and it was from Shona. She'd been trying to ring me. Shona's the missing persons detective in Toronto. She had news. She'd received the full coroner's report from Brighton, the one that we'd been unable to get access to. She'd requested it after our last conversation, and now she had it in her hands. And just as she said she would, she'd made contact with me to tell me what it said. So the first job I had, as soon as I landed back in England, was to call Shona and find out exactly what it said in the report. Hello there, how are you doing? Hi Shona, I'm well actually, how, how are you? Oh, it's the end of a week for me and it's been a busy one, so... Well, it's the, it's the end of a week for me and it's been a lazy one because I've been in Portugal oh. on holiday all week. Oh, you've been on holiday? Yeah, 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 yeah. For for uh, oh, you go to Portugal for it? Yeah, I went to Lisbon, the city. For uh, yeah, it was lovely. If you ever get a chance to go, it's lovely. Oh, it's the news. Okay, so basically, your Michael Dean in Brighton that died there yeah. is the same as our Michael Dean. Wow. So he's they actually registered his his height at six foot seven. Well, <laughs> that's great because that means you've got a missing case that's wrapped up. That yes, yeah, so it's wrapped up. So and um, I'm just going to be basically tying that off because I need to do any due diligence of finding family here, mm -hmm. and then I also need to see if there's maybe a police report. I don't know how it works in Britain. If we have a death at home, like in your residence, then it's usually police that come to do that investigation and then hand it over to removal and the coroner's office, depending on the circumstances. They'll either get an autopsy or they won't. And they have to confirm identity before they're buried or family are notified. Yeah. So I don't know how it was done in 91 in Britain, but I'm hoping they confirmed his ID and maybe made attempts to reach out to family or locate family. But I don't know if that would be the police report, certainly not in the post-mortem. Uh, the police, the police, I would imagine, would be involved once the body had been found. I, yeah. I would imagine so, and obviously the ambulance yeah. service, and then it would have all gone into the into the system. We do we do a lot with um, unknown human remains, and also people without next of kin. Um, we do a lot with uh, trying to find that next of kin on behalf of hospitals and on behalf of um, the coroners as well. Right. They can't find one. So he's six foot seven. If he'd been five foot ten, I don't know what that would have meant. <laughs> I know, eh? <laughs> but hey, that would have probably meant that someone had grabbed his ID. It's funny because so I'm reading the coroner's report, the postmortem, and it basically says it was. It's very indicative of suicide, even though it says um, he died of an overdose. Mm -hmm. It looks like it was a suicidal thing with pills in one hand and alcohol in the other. Yeah. So, um. And it's in my report, the missing person basically says he was married. And I was reading it again, it says he was married and divorced 10 years earlier. Okay. And since that divorce, he'd been in bouts of depression. Yeah. So it's, you know, uh, information we have on his life. He's obviously been back and forward from Canada and Britain and um, had a rough time. And yeah. Just he started off with a, with a tough start in life. And yeah. uh, he ended up with a tough end to his yeah. life, it sounds like. So, uh, yeah, it's sad. We certainly have got names of siblings in Canada, if, right. if, if you want us to supply them to you. Absolutely, that would be awesome, actually. Yeah, we, we have about five or six people that we know are related to him. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Do you have those at hand or do you want to email them? I'd need to email them. I don't have them at hand. Okay. Literally, I've just walked in the door. So, uh, yeah. But I, I, can get, I can get them over the weekend to you. That would be awesome. No rush. Um, I've uh, basically reached out to my, um, we call them Stats Ontario, mm -hmm. Service Ontario, and they take care of birth, death, marriage, change of name certificates. They, they register those. So... I've asked them and they've, they've found, it's actually really funny because the guy called me today and said, okay, I've got good news, maybe. Mm -hmm. I said, but I just need to ask you a question first. 
was his middle name Sterling? <laughs> right. <laughs> I said yes. He goes, good, I've got your guy. <laughs> Great. And um, so yeah, there's even that confusion at this end too. So he obviously, that's his middle name, but he didn't really go by it. No, he didn't. And he didn't, he didn't in Brighton either. And I think that's something yes. to do with the fact that his, his actual family, his father's family, yes. didn't really take ownership of him. Right. I think that's all part of the mix of, of why he uh, ended up maybe the way he did. But, but hey, I'm really pleased he kind of closed it off for you. Yeah, you know what, Ken? Thank you for that. It's been absolutely amazing. You've been incredibly open and sharing. And, uh, you know, really, it's amazing to have people like yourself who have a genuine interest and uh, yeah. want to assist in any way you can. It's Amazing, thank no, you. No, uh, well, I'll miss our conversation. Uh, oh, can you find another one? Well, together? <laughs> you'll have to do that for us next time. You, next time you've got someone in Toronto that you don't, uh, you can't track down, and you think you might be in England. Let me know. I'd be very happy to help. And there's um, there's a few. Um, with, with being in Toronto, we have we're a big mixed pot, mishmash pot of everyone that comes from everywhere, from visitors to immigrants to people that are established and to indigenous people, and we have. A lot of people that we we need to find homes for, like hmm. a lot of bodies. In Toronto alone, we have 59. Wow. And most of them have a European descent, and most of our historic ones, pretty much all have a British background. We've become quite adept at finding people. Oh, as a hobby. I mean, this is not a business. This is our. This is our. Some people yeah. learn French. You know, I yeah. I try and solve murders and missing people. And uh, so we've become quite adept, our little team, at finding people. So if, there's a, if, if you yeah. do ever have anybody that you think, these are from England, but we can't get a break on these, yeah. let me know. Good for you for having a great hobby. <laughs> but good for you for also taking the call and not just saying clear <laughs> off, I'm, I'm busy. Hey, yeah. Shona, it's been great working with you. I really appreciate it. I'm really, really pleased that, that it kind of came through for you uh, in terms of yeah. this one's off the list now. Yeah, no, thanks, Ken. That's been totally appreciated from our end, too. And uh, I've been telling my new boss all about it, and she's like, this is really exciting. <laughs> so, sold on it as well. And, uh, you know, if there's ever a time we can help each other out, I'm sure give us a call anytime. Thanks, Shona. Thanks for all your help. Bye -bye. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Have a great weekend. Okay, so we can write this one off now. Your man and the Brighton man are definitely the same person. We can definitely clean that up, yeah. Fantastic. And hey. I closed my case. Great. <laughs> I needed to catch up with Ian to share the news. And it is amazing news. Michael Sterling Dean isn't a gentleman. That just would have been too easy. But it is a 30-year-old missing persons case that the Toronto police can now close. And that is a big thing. I've never solved a missing persons case before, and I don't know anyone who has. But as a byproduct of our investigation into the gentleman, that's exactly what we've done. So it was time for a quick pat on the back, particularly for Joe and Ian, who had really done the donkey work on this. Ian, I've got some news for you. I've just come off the phone to Shona, uh, and I've just flown back from flipping Lisbon, first thing I did, and I've got some news. She's confirmed, without question now, that the guy that we found in Brighton is their missing man from Toronto in 1991. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's good. That's very good. Success. Absolutely. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, she's amazed. I mean, she, I mean, she's very complimentary, by the way, about the way we went about this and the way we shared things with her. Uh, it might not be the last time we worked with her, Ian, to be honest. Yeah, well, there's... Uh... There's things we did that they hadn't thought of in 30 years that obviously worked. Maybe it's because there is a British connection and they're trying to do it all from Canada. She's probably got a few more like that. Yeah, I mean, we were looking at one. Okay, this is the byproduct of that case, but we were looking at one case. They, I think they've got about 85 cases looking at. So, you know, you kind of understand it. And, you know, 30 years isn't going to be priority one for them nor should it be really but she's delighted in fact the whole department is delighted that they can they can close the book on that one now so hey big pat on the back to uh, to you and joe because to be honest you Indeed. guys turn this one up 
I have to admit it's with a tinge of sadness that we've got that one right in Canada, though, because I thought it was with the height and everything, it was such a good fit for the for the gentleman. Yeah, he was nailed on, wasn't he, gentlemen? Now, the thing, <laughs> the thing is, for the height, uh, I didn't tell you, actually, this is the reason why they're confirming it, is because uh, they got the coroner's report that you weren't able to get access to, and mm. that coroner's report confirms he was six foot seven. Goodness me. Six, seven. Six seven, yeah. And, uh, but he did walk with a hunch, didn't he? Yeah. Which is why they thought he was six, six or something. That's why they thought he was six, six, because he had this kind of hunch as well. But uh, they're absolutely satisfied. Same date of birth, same name, kind of middle name as well. And uh, now the same height. And that height's three and a thousand. So it's in. So, hey, great. We have to move on now. And, uh, Start looking at other people that might be the gentleman. It's definitely not Michael Sterling Dean, but we have found and solved a very long-standing case. So, well played. Well done, us. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, did you mention that you've been, because I'm, I'm literally just flowing back, so I'm picking a load of things up here. So, did you mention that you'd been talking to a forensic scientist or something. I'm interested to see what he had to say. Indeed, yeah. We, there's one or two aspects, quite wide estimates uh, in terms of the time that the body was in the water for, for example. Yeah. Uh, and questions that we've asked that we've got no answers for because we're not experts at all. Yeah. Um, and so I'd reached out to a, a range of forensic scientists and had a, a good conversation with a chap called Tiernan Coyle, who okay. owns his own forensic business. He's a forensic scientist, super well qualified and experienced, actually specializes in fibers. But that could be useful given the fact there were so many items of clothing on the body. Well, it, it's very, very interesting. With his expert hat on, he asked whether the German police had tested the clothes that the gentleman was wearing for any fibers and i i immediately thought well it's been in the sea for, for however long it is surely there won't be any fibers but apparently there are there are even in um even even bodies pulled out of running water fast flowing rivers could still have the carpet fibers from the car that their body was transported in months okay. later so it, it, it's a a potential for a lead we've heard nothing about whether the german police have have tested anything well that's interesting because uh i plan to have a conversation with the guy at the police academy in the course of the next week or so so that might be a question for me to ask him so just to so i understand what he's saying there he's saying that extraneous fibers fibers not connected with the clothing that he was wearing may still have survived on the body even after long-term immersion in the sea that could say something or tell something about the circumstances around his death is that have i got that right yes there's a limitation or he saw a limitation in that the fibers are going to be 30 years old now but the, the point he made, for example, is if this body, which we think was killed elsewhere, then thrown into the sea, therefore must have been transported there somehow. If the body had been transported in the boot of a car, for example, then there could be fibers from the carpet that lined the boot on his clothes. And they're very distinct fibers. Even 30-year-old fibers are distinct to come from car carpet as opposed to anything else yeah oh yeah um, I understand if that. it was a current day case they'd be able to take the fibers and match it to the yeah brand of car but, no uh, you know, you'll you'll be able to work out you know, if it's polypropylene or you know whatever whatever material is used and they're most commonly used in certain types of things that's a very interesting point did he mention now it sounds like he's not a specialist in decomposition but I mean, did you talk to him about the state of the body at all? I did, I did, and uh, and of course, well, when you hear what his answers are, you realise why the uh, why the police have got such uh, wide parameters because 
I was asking questions thinking there was going to be some sort of definitive scale that you could read off. But of course, what he said was, if you're looking at the body decomposition, you need to know all of the other environmental factors of where the, where the body has been before you can even start to make an assessment. So take a, a body that's been thrown fully clothed into the sea, for example. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask what state would it be in after a week? What state would it be in after a month? What state yeah. would it be in after six months? That's logical. It, it, it's impossible it's impossible to, to say that because it all depends on the temperature of the water, for example. Yeah. Uh, it depends on whether he's wrapped up or not. That could protect him. Uh, it depends on what the... We know he was weighted down. So it depends what the um, seabed is like. The seabed is rocks. Yeah. If there's strong currents bashing him about, yeah. then then it could decompose a lot faster with just being broken down, if you like, by that sort of yeah, machine effect, other than lying on a, on a uh, sandy, sandy bottom with, with no strong current. It, it would last a lot longer. That makes sense. Uh, and it also depends on the fauna of the area. Ah, the kind if, of ecosystem. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I thought that... I put it to him that if this guy had no, his eyes are missing and they don't know the color of his hair, that there must be a, a certain amount of time you've got to be in the water before that can happen. Hmm. And there is, but actually it's only overnight, basically. Um, because something as soft and juicy as eyeballs could be taken by crabs virtually as soon as they found it. Yeah. The first bit that they would go to. Now, that's why the eyes can go very, very quickly. Um, we know this chap, from what the police have told us, has got a head injury. Yeah, we do. As well as injuries that show that he was... Injuries from how he was weighted down. But he, he didn't drown. So we think the head injury is, is enough to have killed him. And... If that's a head injury which has fractured the skull, um, I mean, just to take an extreme example, if it if it's a an axe wound and the skull is open, then again, the fish and the crabs and everything that lives there can eat away the scalp almost overnight. Right. So that well, might be why there's no hair. Well, that's really interesting uh, in the sense of, yeah, I was operating under... A false premise there in the sense of I was assuming because we'd kind of made this assumption that he'd lost his eyes he'd lost his scalp and therefore essentially his, his head was a skeleton uh, that he must have been in the water for quite a long time but in fact what this guy is saying is that that could happen really quickly well me um, that's what I thought as well and I think he's thinking there's a that can happen within a week and it also means because the body was still clothed and from what I've seen of the pictures, you know, clo those clothes haven't totally disintegrated by any means, might be starting to make me think that he might not have been in there for months, might have been in there for days or weeks, but not... That's very possible. For not, not for ages. Hmm. Okay, but I take on board what you're saying about the the fact that the conditions, the local conditions of of drift, of tide, of fauna, of rocks or sand, all those things have a major part to play in this as well. So we can't be definitive, but it's an interesting it's an interesting perspective. Right? That's good that you spoke to him. Um, I also asked him. This was us trying to see if it meant that he had been in not very long because they still have all of the clothes on the body uh, and they still seem to be in one piece. Yeah. He did say that seawater was a fairly good preservative for all. Uh, yeah, we've heard that a few yeah. times now. Satra guy said the same thing, didn't he? But particularly, particularly uh, robust and strong materials 
and you'll see why I'm pointing these out, which last long longer in water. Wool, like his trousers. Leather, like his shoes. And cotton, like his shirt. So he's wearing clothing that is made of materials that will, they're built to last. They're designed to withstand that uh, immersion in water. Not necessarily immersion in water for months on end, of course, but um, he could have been in, in the water for weeks without there being any noticeable deterioration of his clothing. What he did say about the wool is the seawater would be most likely to have an effect on the dyes in the wool. Now that's my area of expertise, Ian. There you go. Well then, then, then you need to know how you need to know what the original colour of the trousers were and what the colour of the trousers are now, you'd be able to see if there had been any effect of the seawater on on the dyes in the wool. Well that's interesting. I know a few people a long time ago, me included, who know stuff about dye stuffs, but uh, I can certainly track some people down who definitely know about that. I was mm. gonna say we we need somebody who's a textile and colour chemist, don't we? That's that was me. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but I, I know. Uh, but I've forgotten it all. But it is interesting what he said about the speed of decomposition, particularly if it's assisted by fauna who are hungry. And mm. uh, fauna generally are. So uh, that might mean my thoughts in terms of in how long he's been in the sea might have just changed a little bit in terms of... Uh, into days and weeks as well as months but that's interesting thanks Ian really appreciate that feedback and again you know amazing job on uh, on finding Michael Sterling Dean because uh, that's an amazing result in its own right I know it's kind of good no brilliant great thanks Ian thanks for downloading the podcast and the waters are about to get even murkier i've got a few people i need to personally thank for their assistance this week as you know we often put a call out on facebook for help when we need it and this week we definitely needed it and as you're about to find out we needed some articles translating this week really quickly so that we could piece together a mystery the mystery i'm about to tell you So I asked for help on Facebook and that help was immediately forthcoming. An amazing response. So I want to thank Anne Sutton Whiteside in Illinois, USA, Fiona Melrose in Ireland and someone I only know as Wanderlust Womble who was this week a very helpful Womble. So you're all legends and all of them new parts of this mystery over the last few days and they've all kept it quiet so I'm very appreciative of that so we want to say a big thank you to everyone who helps and please do us the favour of spreading the word about this new case far and wide mention it to your friends colleagues mention it online in fact anyone who's interested in true crime will I hope find it fascinating anyway back to this mystery something weird is going on in the North Sea in 1994, as you're about to find out. It's Monday, the 27th of June, 1994, 11 days before the body we know as the gentleman of Heligoland was found. And a long forgotten mystery is about to begin. In the North Sea, it's a balmy, warm summer evening, virtually a flat calm. A Dutch research vessel called the FRV Tridens is at the beginning of a new research project. It's taking part with about eight other vessels about to conduct a large-scale survey of the North Sea of aquatic mammals, so whales and dolphins and porpoises. The weather over the last few days has been very warm, 25 to 29 degrees centigrade, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, with the odd summer thunderstorm. Very humid, very muggy nights. And even in Scotland, it's around 20 degrees. 
and a fine sun-filled day and evening has been the norm. Now this ship is owned by the Dutch Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries and the FRV Tridens was built in 1990 and is a substantial vessel, nearly 75 metres long and packed with the latest equipment for modern scientific research, navigation and surveying. So nine research vessels are part of this project, with the North Sea divided into blocks A to I, and the project began on Monday the 27th of June where we join the story. Tridens was designated block G, which is a triangular block, which runs at its most northerly point, east of Edinburgh, the Firth of Forth, down to the north of East Anglia, about 250 miles further south, and stretches across to the east, nearly as far as Denmark. So a kind of triangular block, which mirrors the shape really of the North Sea at that point and the project was scheduled to run from the 27th of June 1994 to the 26th of July 1994 so a full month and each of those vessels was to make a pre-designed zigzag course which had been pre-selected to give the maximum coverage possible for each point in their block and therefore overall providing the best sampling technique for the whole of the North Sea. So this was a highly organised project with significant resources both of ships and aircraft following very precise cruising patterns and intensive shipboard and aerial survey. The FRV Tridens, that's the vessel we're interested in, by the way FRV stands for Fishery Research Vessel, had started its project. On board, there were three types of people, and 25 people in all. Professional crew, those involved in the sailing and maintenance of the vessel. Secondly, scientists involved in the project, marine biologists primarily. And thirdly, a volunteer, neither crew nor scientist, not really involved in the project at all. A bird watcher called Jan Beyer, 49 years of age, from Amsterdam a devoted ornithologist, quiet, reserved, polite, studious. The boat set sail around the 20th of June 1994 from Holland to take up its position for the start of a survey. And according to one of the biologists on board, Mr. Bayer could not believe his luck. The chance to spend over a month on a scientific research vessel in the middle of summer following his great passion bird watching, mapping the distribution of seabirds in relation to fish stocks. And as the vessel sailed onwards to its start position, Mr. Bayer spent the first week at sea sat on the roof deck of the Tridents, counting birds in the long, warm, balmy summer days. The Tridents spent around 16 hours in Aberdeen Harbour over the weekend of the 25th and the 26th of June and at some point on Sunday, set sail to reach its position to begin the survey on Monday, the 27th of June. All perfectly normal. Jan Beyer was seen around 8pm on Sunday evening as the ship steamed out to sea. But he was never, ever seen again. So just as the official survey was about to begin, Monday the 27th of June, something was wrong. Very wrong. Mr. Bayer did not appear for breakfast. Mr. Bayer did not appear at all. Not in his cabin, not on the deck, not on the ship. Jan Bayer had disappeared in the middle of the North Sea without a trace. The vessel by this time was about 100 miles north of the Scottish town of Fraserburgh at the time of its disappearance. That, by the way, is the first weird thing. Because according to the project report, which I'll put on Facebook, that's not where it's supposed to be. That's not 
in its block. Block G is sailing away from its block. So that's a bit of a curiosity. But Jan Bay has gone missing. The alarm was sounded around 10am on Monday the 27th of June. The response was immediate and significant. A seeking helicopter from RAF Lossiemouth was scrambled. Two more helicopters from the 40s and Brea oil fields were scrambled. And those three helicopters scoured the vessel's track for hour upon hour. A boat from the Maureen Alpha field also joined the search. The Bergen Surveyor survey vessel also joined the hunt. The Tridens itself, with all its latest surveying technology, retraced its journey in a bid to find Mr. Bayer. But no sign of Mr. Bayer was ever seen. Now, it is difficult to spot a body in water. And this is the North Sea. It can be choppy. But the conditions in June 1994 were as good as they could ever be for finding a body that's been in the water for a matter of hours. The search for Mr. Bayer was officially called off on, on Tuesday the 28th of June at 1pm. Mr. Bayer had officially been lost at sea. But how was that possible? No one knew. How does someone fall off a boat in a calm sea on a warm summer evening and nobody notice? One of the biologists on the Tridents remembered him well. He ate with us, he didn't stand out at all because of any strange behaviour. In fact, he was the epitome of a middle-aged man. Quiet normality. Jan Beyer was a quiet man. He neither smoked or drank. He was married with one daughter, a dock worker by trade, remembered as a friendly, quiet man, devoted to bird watching, stable and ordinary. So, was this just a sad case of an unexplainable man overboard situation? Maybe, but maybe not. Was it an accident? Was it something darker? Grampian police in Scotland boarded the ship when it returned to port and immediately searched Bayer's cabin. And all wasn't as it should be. There was blood in the cabin. Depending on what source, the description ranges from a blood-spattered cabin to covered in blood to a trail of blood in the cabin. But it was clear something violent enough to leave substantial amounts of blood had happened in Mr. Bayer's cabin. Therefore, the cabin was sealed as a crime scene by the Grampian police. But this was complicated. This was a Dutch vessel owned by a ministry of the Dutch government and a potential crime had been committed far out at sea. And according to maritime law, the Tridens is Dutch territory. So Grampian police were limited in terms of what they could do. And the Tridens was allowed to leave and sailed back to the port of Imuriden, near Amsterdam. And there, when it arrived, the Dutch state investigation began. And firstly, the blood that was found in Mr. Bayer's cabin was found to be of the same group as the victim. So suddenly, something that appeared to be a tragic accident of falling overboard seemed to have gone on for much longer than that. Something happened in that cabin that probably began the disappearance of Mr. Bayer. A statement at the time that the police put out in Holland was none of the 25 passengers, sailors or scientists involved is currently suspected of having anything to do with the disappearance of the birdwatcher. Little is then reported about this whole mystery again until the 11th of January. 1995, six months later, where we find an article in a Dutch newspaper that says the Dutch prosecutor has concluded the investigation and concluded 
suicide. But without any hard evidence to completely close the case, but in the absence of any other evidence, there's no reason to think it's anything but a suicide. And so the case was closed and forgotten until we found it again when we were looking for the gentleman and when I found this story in Lisbon. And he could be the gentleman. Now that depends entirely on the height, which I don't know, of Mr. Bayer. And the weird thing is, the journey back to Imoiden took the Tridens very close to Heligoland. Now, by no means directly past it, but they did sail very close on their way back to Holland about a week before the gentleman of Heligoland was found. Now, my senses tell me there's something fishy about this case, irrespective of whether he's the gentleman of Heligoland. Suicide? Really? Absolutely no indication of depression or mental health issues. A quiet, friendly non-drinker. 49 years of age, which by the way, is the same age as the body of the gentleman of Heligoland. But he was following his passion. He's just about to start a project he'd been an enthusiastic volunteer for. He'd been given a bird watcher's opportunity of a lifetime. And all the indications where he was making the most of it. If there'd been any problems, that ship had docked the previous evening before in Aberdeen. He could have left. No questions. He was a volunteer. And there was no note. Now, that might not be as significant as it sounds because somewhat surprisingly only a minority although a substantial minority of suicide victims leave a note but something tells me a 49 year old long married man with a daughter would have left some explanation for taking his own life but absolutely nothing and of course there's the blood in the cabin but no weapon a strange way to commit suicide. If you've got to throw yourself overboard, fine. There's no need to hurt yourself so badly beforehand that the cabin has got very significant blood residue all over it before you throw yourself overboard. Why would you? And why would you take with you whatever you used to hurt yourself with? I don't think so. His daughter, Diane, who was a reporter at a weekly magazine at the time, was interviewed and she said, I can't believe my father would suddenly have become tired of life, certainly not at a time when he was busy with the most beautiful thing he did, birdwatching and counting. So that's the story of the man who went missing in the North Sea two weeks before the gentleman of Heligoland's body was found. So, I need to know exactly what height he was, because if he was six foot five, this man could very much be our man. But I'm going to leave you in this story with one final thought. I reached out to a Dutch journalist a few days ago, just to ask if they'd ever heard of this case that I'd just discovered. It was 30 years ago, so I wasn't very hopeful. But it turns out they had and there was a further dark twist in the story. The acclaimed Dutch crime investigator Peter R. de Vries was working on this case about 20 years ago. Someone who worked on that case for Peter de Vries stated that in their investigation they'd uncovered evidence of arguments on board the Tridens before the disappearance of Mr. Bayer. Never previously divulged. And even more darkly, Peter R. de Vries, that Dutch journalist, was murdered last year, probably getting far too close to the truth on one of his cases. So that is the full story of what I found, and of that man in the North Sea. And whether he's the gentleman of Heligoland or not, I smell a rat. I needed to speak to Ian. So, 
Ian, I've just been through the story. I've obviously the listeners are familiar with it. I am. I know you and Joe are as well because you've been working like mad on this as well. So, yeah. Uh, what are what are your initial thoughts just uh, immediately after going through that? Well, we we have our first bullseye with how old the chap is. Spot on, I think. Yeah, it is. And I can imagine a 50-year-old bird watcher on his downtime, sitting in his cabin, relaxing. Could be the sort of guy who's wearing his comfy shoes and and, and a tie. Sounds right. But it's a long way off. It's a long way off from where the gentleman was found. It's got to be about it's got to be about three hundred miles, three hundred and fifty miles from from where this guy went off the boat. It seems down to Heligoland. It's a hell of a way to drift. It's uh, he's got two weeks though. I mean that's an interesting thing as well. I mean he he goes in the sea two weeks before the body's found. That's a hell of a that's close as well. Very close. Uh, but he'll need to have gone a long way, a long, long way in that two weeks for it to be him, I guess. Well. Weighted down across the North Sea, I can't, I can't see it. I can't see that. I can't see that he fell in off Scotland and ended up off Heligoland. This, this doesn't feel like a suicide, does it? <laughs> Absolutely not. Not to me. Not to me. How? How? If you are of mind that you're going to jump off the boat and commit suicide. How do you damage yourself to the point that your cabin becomes blood spattered? Yeah. Then walk up onto the deck of the ship without leaving a speck of blood anywhere else on the ship, <laughs> and then and then jump in. Yeah, I I I I can't square that. I think um, I think there are other possibilities which are far more plausible and which, in theory, of course would address some of the issues that we've already got. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. This is this doesn't feel like a suicide to me. Uh, and there's no note. And I know not all suicides have notes, but a fair proportion do. You know, nobody suspected this man was a depressive. He didn't leave any indication behind him as to why he'd taken his own life. Something fishy about this one, Ian. Where if he's the gentleman of Adagolander, if he isn't the gentleman... Something weird was going on on that boat, I suspect. But I cut you off there. So, so I mean, are there are there any other explanations in terms of potential well, explanations at least? I think because it's a Dutch fishery vessel, the Scottish police were in a very difficult situation. I think they've got to organise, which they did, uh, the extensive search in case he's gone over the side. But I think they are duty bound to hand over any further investigation to the Dutch police. And in preparing things for that, I mean, they sealed off his cabin. Yeah. They, they sealed that off because it was a potential crime scene, I yeah. think. Yeah, I agree, 100%. 100%. And then allowed the, the, the boat to sail back to Holland. And I think it was the sort of Dutch special branch because it's a government vessel. It's the Dutch special branch who took over the investigation. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Now, is it a coincidence that on the way back to Holland, which is the journey that boat then took, it goes past Heligoland? <laughs> is it too much of a coincidence? In my, in my mind, which started to be shaped by Agatha Christie at the age of seven, <laughs> I think if someone has been clobbered over the head, for example, to leave their cabin blood spattered and then hidden on the boat whilst there's a search takes place. So there's a conclusion that he's not on the boat. So we're going to have to search for him. Then there's time for him to be weighed down and thrown over the side on the way back to Holland, just off Heligoland. Is that too far-fetched? Well, it's a theory. There's absolutely no evidence for it, apart from we've got a body in Heligoland. But I tell you what, there's, absolutely, there's, there's more to that than there is to the suicide theory. The suicide theory makes no sense to me. 
this is a real Agatha Christie mystery, this is. Whatever happens, I'd like to dig a, li- a lot deeper into what happened uh, on the Tridents in uh, June 1994. Mm. But in the context of him being the gentleman, where do we go from here? How do we, how do we fit that last piece of the jigsaw just to work out whether it's him? Well, the last piece of the jigsaw, as it has been several times already, is how tall this chap was. I think I'm, I'm so touched by how passionately Diane, his daughter, said it would never be suicide. I, I, I've got to talk to Diane, firstly, just to say how, uh, you know, what a shocking story this is and how for it just to be dismissed six months later as a, as a suicide, it seems as if certainly they haven't turned over all of the possible rocks. Um, but Diane will be able to tell me how tall he was. True. And, and and she'll be able to she'll be able to tell us whether there was any prospect of him being the sort of chap who who might want to end it all when he's in the middle of doing something that he loves. He's out on the sea counting his seabirds, which is what it's what he lived for. But I'd really like to know what his state of mind was, because whatever happens with gentlemen, if it's not him, I'd still like to know what happened on that boat. Thanks, mate. You let us know how you get on. Will do. See you soon. So, that's the end of what I hope has been an intriguing episode. And as so often happens, we're left with a lot of homework to do. We've closed one case and opened a new one. Whatever happened on the FRV Tridens in 1994, it wasn't suicide. He may be the gentleman. He may not be the gentleman. But Jan Bayer is now part of of this mystery and we're on his case but that's for next time so until next time have a good one The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>